I'm reading this straight the off. Urban Dictionary. I'm what Urban Jeff Dictionary, means. straight off what Jeff says. These are not my words. Okay. Jeff is the perfectest human on the entire planet. Best boyfriend of all time. Funniest person of all time. His girlfriend loves him infinitely times more than he loves her no matter what. Amazing human being. Super nice, kind, very patient. Jeez, how is he so patient? I don't even know. He is too perfect to put into these words. So here's some gibberish words. <laughs> Jeff is so perfect. What the fuck? How does he even function? Wow. I like that. I'll take that. There are three types of people in this world. People you know, people you don't know, and people you're going to want to know. It's these unique individuals that we shine a light upon, and in them, perhaps, find a reflection of ourselves. I'm Rosa Hill, and this is Silhouette. In this two-part episode, we shine a light on Jeff Staple, founder of Staple Design, a multifaceted agency based in and on New York City. In part one, we discuss the origins of Staple Design and how Jeff became an influential figure in streetwear, an almost $200 billion a year industry. In part two, we take a more casual approach as we get some insight into Jeff's personal life and his opinions on street culture as a whole. This is Jeff Staples' Silhouette. Can't believe we are in Jeff Staples' office. I feel like this is a goldmine for a child, which (laughs) you probably wouldn't want to have in here. (laughs) No, I know. Yeah, welcome to uh, my office. We're in Midtown, New York City. Um, This is the- Amazing construction outside. I love it. It's authentic. Yeah, this is a classic New York moment, you know, scaffolding and dudes outside. I don't know what they're doing. Um, but yeah, this is the uh, this is the office for our clothing line, Staple. Um, I have another office in Soho, which is for our creative agency, Read Art Department. So shall we start from the beginning? Sure, Let's you want. talk about your roots and okay. your upbringing and your background. I guess first and foremost, I'm a, a son of immigrant parents from, from China. Uh, emigrated to the state of New Jersey. Uh, just about 45 minutes outside of New York City. They had a business where um, they brought in like soy sauce and fortune cookies and then distributed them to local Chinese restaurants. Um, So they were like an import exporter of Chinese food and they just were like struggling to survive in the great American dream that all immigrants try to aspire to. Uh, I'm an only child. Um, ah, me too. Oh, cool. But yeah, it was tough because they worked their asses off. I barely even like got to see them all that much. So, and with no siblings, it was like just basically raising myself. You didn't actually grow up in this area and near New York City. Do you think you would actually be where you are today if you say, Maybe you grew up in a small, tiny town. Yeah, I mean, I think environmentalism, like where your environment is, has a a lot to do with what you become in a sense, you know? Um, I think conversely on one end, I know a lot of people that grew up like in Manhattan and like, you know, born and raised New Yorkers 
Um, and that doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're gonna be quote unquote successful or great. It's not like an entree into like success, you know? Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say that sometimes New Yorkers sort of feel like privileged or entitled because they feel like they've got the card of like, I'm a true New Yorker. I'm already 50% of the way there, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're slightly outside of that, then you feel like you have to earn the respect of being a New Yorker or earn your way into the, you know, the mindset of, of what it means to be a New Yorker. And that creates hustle. That sort of like, I need to prove myself kind of thing mm -hmm. versus like, I'm born here, I was raised here, I don't need to prove shit to nobody mentality. You know exactly. What I mean? Yeah, so there's pros and cons to everything. My parents from a very young age brought me to work and they would just be like, just go roam the city and come back at five when we leave. They were just like, just don't die. Just but don't like, die, just come yeah, home. We yeah. love you too much. And I got to experience, I mean, bless them because I got to experience a lot of amazing shit in New York City back then, you know? Like, um, this was like in the early 80s, I'm dating myself, but this is like the 80s of New York City. You don't look like you're from the 80s. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Not one wrinkle try, on your try, skin, yeah. let me tell you. <laughs> it's that Chinese blood. Yeah. Um, but this is the birth of hip hop in New York. You know what I mean? Like that that thing you hear about where like you can buy mixtapes from a DJ out the back of a trunk. I remember getting conned uh, in, a, in a game of like three card Monty, you know? And I remember like game. being young and getting conned and, and I was really upset, but then later on I was like, it's kind of cool that like at a young age I, I got hustled. I realized that Crazy. everyone watching the three card money is part of the- They're all working together. They're all working together. Yes, that's when I learned. I was like, oh, they're all working together. Like, you got me. <laughs> I would have called my mom like, mom, these people were dishonest. I got <laughs> mugged. I got mugged. You got mugged? Yeah. Wow. By Madison Square Garden, so. But I also got like stabbed. Oh my gosh, you got stabbed? Yeah. When they <laughs> robbed you? Yes. Was it because you didn't want to give your wallet? It's because after I gave him my wallet, I ran after him in like a heated moment. He went into a building, went into an elevator, and then I was with him now in an elevator. Like Adrenaline's just rushing. Yeah, yeah. You've become the next James Bond basically in your mind. No, he got me, he but stabbed me and then I, I came out of the elevator. Oh my gosh, where did he stab you? He stabbed me here, but he didn't make Are contact. So he went through all, Thank, all your clothes. thank God for like triple XL hip hop clothing because I was wearing like my <laughs> massive puffer. I think I was wearing like yeah my Perry Ellis America jacket and like he just went like this and like went through my whole thing but didn't make contact with oh me. Oh my gosh! And I was just you're like, oh. so lucky. Yeah. So so just overall classic New York City shit, you know that um, I I am blessed that I was able to experience. But let's jump into your brand. Mm -hmm. What would you say defines you and your brand itself? Consistency. That's the first word that comes to mind. Um, we are embarking on the 25th anniversary of the founding of this brand by me. The secret to getting to the quarter century mark is not being the dopest, flyest, hottest thing on earth. It's not. It's like, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, everyone wants to be like, you know, blazing hot and like the thing that everyone talks about. And trust me, I do too. And we've been there multiple times and it's more like surfing where it's like, you just have to like ride waves, you know? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter who you are, but you're gonna have down cycles. 
And the secret to longevity and success is how is not how you get to the ups, it's how you handle the downs. When I started the brand, um, I wanted it to be generational. Like I wasn't aiming to be hot. I was aiming for like generations of my family and people to be like, staple man, like that is and was such a thing, you know? Um, and I think the beautiful part about it is that entering our 25th year, it doesn't feel long at all for me. 25 years. 25 years is crazy. crazy. Mo like, let me put into perspective, the majority of our customer base wasn't born when I printed the first staple shirt. I started it in 97 out of college, you know. Um, but it's crazy that I hear just kids being like, I hear kids saying like, I love your brand because my dad rocks your brand. So like it's now it's generate it is literally generational like a, it's passed down to like I love that though yeah. so it's dads showing their kids about what they love wearing exactly. and then they pass it down to their kids yep. exactly it's pretty cool yeah so that's a uh, that's where we're at right now um, and when you ask me what I think about what I personally think about the brand I'm sure if you ask a hundred people on the street what they think about Staple everyone will have a, a different thing whether it's a sneaker or like creative agency or my podcast or whatever it is um, but for me it's just like left, right, left, right, left, one step at a time consistency. You know, that's that's all it is. People want overnight successes, but they don't understand that, like, even when you see an overnight success, there was probably years and years of, like, Work. grind mm -hmm. that went into that. It's just that you discovered them overnight, but there was a lot of preparation that went into it before that, you know? So let's bring it back to 2005. I know okay. this is probably the question that everyone always it's asks. Okay. Since yeah. This was a pinnacle moment in time. I mean, this is probably one of the craziest drops for mm -hmm. Nike, as mm -hmm. well as yourself, to ever happen in history. Yeah, yeah. There's a footwear frenzy going on in the city right now. A special sneaker made just for New York is in such high demand, people are fighting to own a pair of these things. CBS 2's Michael Pomeran shows us how Nike's pigeon dunk has feathers flying. Home video shows the scene outside the Reed Space Store on the Lower East Side yesterday when nearly 100 self-proclaimed sneakerheads got into a shoving match as they waited for the doors to open and the chance to buy one of only 20 pairs of pigeons. Limited edition, of course. This is the infamous shoe. This is the, uh, this is the Nike pigeon dunk. Um, we dropped it in 05. It was a really interesting time in sneaker culture prior to this dropping because it was still a, a subculture at that point. When I say that, I mean like there was like maybe a couple of thousand kids that were like into sneakers in a really obsessive way. Um, I was personally into sneakers big time since the sixth grade. So like before the term sneakerhead was even invented, I was like already collecting shoes for some strange reason, not because of resale, not because of hype, not because of flexing on the gram, because none of those things were invented yet. Yeah. It was purely out of like the strange obsession with the design and the creation of sneakers. That was really what it came down to for me. People think that the pigeon dunk was like the one and only thing that I ever did, but of course, if you think about it, Nike doesn't just call people and be like, what kind of Nike do you want to do? Like, Can you imagine? <laughs> like, Nike just goes today? through an yeah. old phone book and they're yeah, like, like, let's just spin the pages. Ah, yeah. oh, it's staple. staple. Let's call this guy. Yeah, we had done a lot of things up until this point. Um, and we had done a lot of things with Nike up until this point, actually, that a lot of people don't really, aren't familiar with and don't know about. So this pigeon dunk was probably like our seventh or eighth shoe design for Nike. Design. Not to mention, other design work, like graphic design, apparel design, internal presentation work, like 
that is like in the dozens and dozens of, of work that we've done. Do you want to know the story of how? Yeah, let's hear okay. A so bit of the story. I was um, I was uh, the art director for a magazine that's still around today. It's called the Fader Magazine. It's a very prominent music, fashion, culture magazine. I was the art director of it for the first 20 issues. So like I designed completely the first 20 issues of the Fader. I went to NYU for journalism before I went to Parsons for design. So I have like a oh, okay. journalistic bug in me. Um, and so I was allowed to pitch stories to the Fader, you know, every once in a while. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do an article about why Nike in Japan at the time was releasing limited edition shoes and there was a small group of people that would buy shoes in Japan. And when I say that, I don't mean Amazon one-click pay. I mean fly on a plane with it. empty bags, go to Japan, buy as many shoes as they could, fly back, and then sell them with a markup. This is the wow. birth of resale. So that was the birth of resale. Yes, it was like Nike in America was making stuff for Foot Locker and Athlete's Foot. Yeah. Nike in Japan was making these limited edition shoes one of which was they were working with a store called Atmos at the Atmos. time. Atmos, okay. okay. And I wanted to understand like, why is a billion dollar company making 36 pairs of shoes for one store in Japan, when now they see that there's demand happening here in America, mm -hmm. why don't they just make more of them? They're a billion dollar capitalistic company. Why are they doing this thing? And so <laughs> I, I pitched the story to the publishers of the Fader and they're like, that's an interesting story. All right, we're gonna send you to Japan and. and research this and I had no leads zero leads. No leads I don't speak Japanese at all just landed in Japan started going into retail stores and I would just be like pull a shoe off the shelf I'll be like who sells you this shoe and they're like what and I'm like I come from the fader magazine I bring a copy of the fader I'm doing an article about Nike who sells you this shoe I would work my way up this investigative ladder to the point where I finally got to the guy who decides which shoe gets made in how many limited quantities and which store it goes into. We sat down at the headquarters of Nike Japan and we conducted an interview about why he did this. He's like, I want to get you out to Beaverton, which is the headquarters of Nike Global. He's like, we should just talk. And I was like, yes, we absolutely should. And at that time, you know, Beaverton, Oregon was like the Wizard of Oz. Like, it was like this mecca of a place that a sneakerhead could never actually go to. That's how my relationship with Nike started. But a funny story is when I met with him, he's like, you know, I, I, I should introduce you to another guy um, who we work with in Tokyo. He helps me decide which shoes to pick and what colors to make them and what fabrics to make them. So he's like my, he doesn't work for Nike, but he's like a consultant of ours. And you should meet with him too and put him in the magazine. I was like, great, I would love to. And he's like, yeah, his name's Hiroshi Fujiwara and he owns this brand called Fragment. <laughs> so the next day- Just a yes. subtle name. He brought hip hop back to, yes. to Japan. Yes, he brought hip hop to How Japan. How funny is yeah. that? From New York. Yes, and then he brought, he also brought punk rock culture through Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren from yeah. London to Japan. Um, so he's the ultimate, you know, culture curator. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so we had our interview. After that interview, he's like, oh, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? So I was like, okay, oh. amazing. You know, so I, I go to his house for dinner that night. A couple people are there. It's like a, a small party, a small gathering of people. And um, I see on the couch, I see James Jebbia, who owns Supreme. He's just sitting on the couch. Then I go to his backyard and there's like a guy, like, you know, grilling shrimp. Turns around, it's Eric Clapton grilling shrimp and like chicken, <laughs> right? Then another guy walks in, I don't know who he is. He introduces himself, he's like, oh, I'm Hiroki. I was like, oh, what do you do? He's like, oh, I just started this brand, it's called VizVim. You know, and I was like, 
And I, you know, I didn't know who these people yeah. were, but like then I come to realize like, wow, I was just at dinner with Eric Clapton, who I knew. James Jebby, I knew also, because not only did he own Supreme, but he also was the manager and owner of Union in New York. Oh, yeah. And he was the manager of the Stussy New York City store. So I knew him from just being downtown. Yeah. And then this guy who was about to start a brand called Visvin walks in, you know? So, like, immediately I was, like, injected That's your normal into... dinner party. No, not at all. <laughs> and that was just, like... You know, some people will say, like... I've, I've cross-examined myself on this many, many times. Some people will say, like... You're so lucky that you were there, right? Like, yeah, I am lucky in a way. But I also, don't forget, pitched the fader on this story. Got them to approve me to go out there. Everything Hustled. had to align perfectly. Everything had to align. I had to hustle my way up, ask questions that didn't have answers to. I had uh -huh. no bearings at all. Worked my way up, found myself into this, yes, lucky position. Mm -hmm. But many, many people would have stopped at even asking to go. This is the snowball effect or, or, you know, or the butterfly effect, whatever. But like you just take one pebble and you just flick it and then you just let it roll and just go and just let it go. The worst part is when people are paralyzed by the options of like, what if I flick it and this, well, nothing happens? What if I fail? What if it, it blows up and I can't handle it? Like, mm -hmm. why don't you just fucking jump and see what happens? What's interesting, now that I'm hearing you talk about your experience in Japan, mm -hmm. is this kind of the starting point of collabs, would you say? There's this thing called like work for hire mm -hmm. or design work, and then there's collaboration. And there's a very fine line between the two. Basically that fine line is like, we're gonna give you money to design something mm -hmm. for us, and you have to be quiet about it and walk away, take your check and shut up. That's design work for hire. Okay. Collab is, Put your signature here. Yeah. So Whether the shoes at Atmos that you were talking about, were they able to put their branding? No. Oh, okay. So it was just giving them yes. the pairs of shoes. Okay, interesting. Yes, yes. And these shoes that I designed early for Nike, like the Navigation Pack, the Nordic Pack, the uh, Cortez Laser, the Air Rift Laser, these are shoes that I designed mm -hmm. before the word collaboration was born. It was work for hire. They gave me money to design them here. These are two other ones that, that I had a hand in designing. Um, ah. that are not collaborative. They're just designed just for hire. Design. Yeah. yeah. This was the first one where they said, you can put you your, can stamp, put on your stamp on it. Yeah. yeah. I could have put my signature on it. I could have put my full name on it. But I was already, because I had a clothing line, I was developing a mascot and a logo for the clothing line at the same time. When Nike was like, we want you to design a shoe dedicated to New York City, right? I was like, I'm already designing a mascot dedicated to New York City, mm -hmm. and it's for my clothing line. It hadn't even come out yet. Oh, wow. What if this was the launching platform for, for logo. this logo? You know, and uh, it seemed too perfect to me, but then when I pitched it to Nike, because they are expecting like, oh, we can't wait to, so what do you got, Statue of Liberty dunk? Or like the you know, Empire <laughs> State hold Building? A sneaker yeah, with, like you know, the taxi cab dunk? Yeah. And I was like, pigeon. <laughs> These dudes are from Beaverton, Oregon. They have hawks. The things that you think are, you know, represent New York, 
you think that because you don't live in New York. Yeah. If you live in New York, you understand what a pigeon means. Now, they had to take my word for it because none of them lived in New York, right? Yeah. So they're like, well, I mean, we chose you to design this, so I guess we're just gonna trust you. And I was yeah. like, thanks. And, and kudos to Nike for, like, there was no design change at all. This really? was This was my Illustrator CAD, and this was the sample. There was no like, can you tweak the, 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 the like, color? Your nothing. pigeon looks slightly like, off. Nothing. They literally were like, I guess we'll have to trust you. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so now, when you look at the sneaker riot, the New York Post cover, the the news, all the you know things that happened from that, you could argue that none of that would have happened if they meddled in the design process. If they wanted to make it more accessible and knowledgeable for like outside New Yorkers, but they were just like. Let's trust the artist that we asked to do this mm -hmm. and see what happens. That's how history got made. What is your favorite food to eat then in the city here? Um, Obviously, we know Chinese is better in Canada. Yeah, we had Canada the Chinese now, right? discussion. Chinese in Canada just destroys so like if you're gonna have Chinese just wait to go to Toronto or Vancouver in I New love York Toronto. You know, I, I travel a lot and there are certain foods that New York just has nailed that no matter how hard another city tries they can't replicate it yeah so the dollar slice the dollar slice the dollar slice is like you New York just wrong. has that unlock, you know? The I've margarita, had many the drunken nights yeah. getting my dollar slice. And then the other thing is the New York City bagel. Is yes. I think also something that can't be replicated. Actually, Montreal makes a dope bagel. It's a totally different species, but the New York City bagel is, is classic. And they say that it's the New York City water that makes the pizza and the bagel so good. Oh, the bread. Which is why even if you replicate the entire kitchen in another city, uh -huh. the water is different. It's different. Yeah. Step in this, guys. One thing about being in the city too is uh, watching. Yeah. That's like when you're having the worst day of your life, right? You step in. You step in shit. shit. It's the worst. Your day is over. So yeah. So those are the New York City staples, I think. I mean, obviously, New York is kind of the cultural capital of the world, so you're always gonna find the best of the best in New York. This is where all my wedding shoots happen. My fake weddings. Oh, your fake wedding. I've been married many, like eight yeah, how times. Many times have you married? You ever married a fake, you know, husband, but then gone out on a real date with your then fake husband? With my no. No, you no, never I, dated. No, a, I've you never, never dated a model. I've dated a model before, but not one that you shot with. Not one that I've shot okay. with. That'd no. be really cute if you got married and you're Can like, you imagine? Hey, let's go on a date. And then we, we actually married. really got yeah, married. Yeah, and then we you would got, already have our pictures. Yo, that's a rom-com like, right really there. <laughs> that's like some. You know, affordable like, way to do it, right? Yeah, Engagement you already did pictures it. <laughs> are already done. We saved 5K on the wedding photos. Exactly. I had a tailor in London make my wife and I like our wedding outfits. They're made out of like Nike Tech Pack Performance fleece. So what? our whole tuxedo was made out of made like out of Nike, Nike tech fleece though. Like they're, they're so super, super light. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's incredible. I still have I it. I like their tech fleece. It's yeah. really, well, it's also extremely stretch, stretchy, and right? And um, I wore white, white Air Force Ones and my wife wore Cortez's because she's from LA. So we had the uptown. <laughs> That's New very York Cortez. That is a very LA sneaker. Yep. I think it's actually snowing. What's yeah, the odds awesome. of this? 
We're gonna have a white Christmas, everyone. Yep. <laughs> it's so strange. So, it's like Hollywood snow. Yeah, it is like Hollywood snow. Right? It's like I a feel snow like machine. we literally have a snow machine right yeah. now that's happening. This is very cool. This is when all the sneakerheads freak out and they need to go get plastic bags for their shoes, right? <laughs> that's ridiculous. <laughs> you just gotta wear your shoes, man. Gotta go get some Ziploc bags. I feel like I could just sit on a table somewhere and just people watch people's feet. Yeah. Do you like identify people when you meet them first by the shoes that they wear? You're gonna see an Air Force One in white. Yeah. <laughs> like what else is a really it became popular like a, shoe? It became like a young teen female thing. Yeah. To wear white, white Air Force Ones, right? And women just, you know what I've realized? They don't like to cover their ankles. Yeah. So if they can choose silhouettes, they're not gonna really go for like an Air Jordan 1 high. Right. They would prefer a low, yeah. just because it shortens them. Right, but you got the height. I'm, I'm so tall, I'll, yeah, I'll take yeah. anything to sort of make me look normal. <laughs> like. Is it here? Oh yeah, it's, oh, it's not oh. lit yet. Oh, they haven't lit it yet. This is like, we're being tourists, it's fun. So what's your go-to sneaker right now that you like to wear? New Balance, I see the W tab. No, these are not my go-tos. Um, they're comfy though, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they're good. I gotta say, right now my go-to is Crocs. Crocs? Grateful Dead's, no, sorry, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh, you got those? I got those ones, the ones that actually smell like the chicken. Those are really rare. Yeah, so I got a pair of those. And they are so comfortable. They're wow, just so I'm jealous, easy to I want on. those. Yeah, I mean, during COVID, Crocs just like took over, you know, they were like the go-tos and my instinct is to put them on when I go out, but then I'm like, no, I, I do have to represent Exactly, yeah, culture. you're like, this like, is kind of the at-home shoe. Yeah, let me, let me think of something. Around. Let me attempt and try to like put something good on, you know? fit mm -hmm. into the culture and where do you see it going into the future because I do think that women are starting to have a bigger presence Definitely. and the brands are aware of it. Mm -hmm. I mean I think you you touched on it earlier when you said the goal is actually to me like genderless like it's not about male or female but mm -hmm. uh, for better or for worse street culture in my opinion is sort of born out of skate culture hip-hop culture and sports it's mm -hmm. the it's the marriage of those three things that created street culture and those three things were all male dominated you know cultures as well mm -hmm. so it makes sense that street culture starts out dominated by male mm -hmm. and then now we're in an age I think currently where there's finally recognition of what females are able to do with this clothing that is oftentimes made by and for males mm -hmm. but Females are able to take it and create the style and, you know, add new trends to it as well. Mm -hmm. Sneaker brands now, their number one priority is the female demographic. And so to me, like, it's coming up where I feel like very soon, like in the next three years, I think when you go to Nike.com or Adidas.com, like, there won't be men and women sections anymore. Mm -hmm. You'll just get there and you'll it's just be like a unisex kind of section. Yeah, because I don't think there should be, like, 
oh, that's the best female design sneaker of the year. Like, why do you mm -hmm. even, like, why can't it just be it's the best? the best design, yeah. Yeah, Because exactly. even, you know, with sneaker releases, I hate sometimes when it's a woman release and I feel like sometimes they're really thinking, okay, how do we make this extremely feminine versus why don't we just put a good color on the sneaker? Yeah. Have you ever heard of the term shrink it and pink it? The old mentality was you take a men's shoe, shrink it and put pink on it and now you have a women's shoe. Shoe dog shrink term. Shrink it and pink it. Yep, that's how oh. you made women's shoes. Yeah, so I think it's it's there. It, we're right at the precipice. You know, um, I think a great example is actually recently, you know, the Sakai Nikes that have come out, right? Mm -hmm. And the success of them, both on a sneaker hype level, but mm -hmm. also on a mainstream level, right? There, I see like regular dudes who are not sneaker heads mm -hmm. love this shoe. They don't know anything about Sakai. Yeah. They just want this shoe, right? Sakai is owned Abbe is yeah, just by so a female, cool. right? Nike and hence. The public was not like bravo to a female designer on mm -hmm. making this great female-led shoe. Like, no, it, it's just dope. When, you, when period. you look at it, the colors are great. Yep. It's not like a bubblegum pink. Yeah. Sometimes it's a little intimidating when somebody's asking, well, what's your sneaker collection? What's your first shoe that you had? How many shoes do you have? And Whenever I go on panels, I think one thing that I talk about is breaking down those barriers. Yeah. It shouldn't be so competitive. No. You know, everybody should be able to be a part of this. Yeah. And I don't think that there should be guidelines as to what makes you a sneakerhead. Right, right. I agree. In fact, I'm going to flip the script and like, when I hear someone say, I have three pairs of shoes, I'm like, bravo. Like, that is aspirational to get mm -hmm. your whole curation down to like three? minimalist, these yeah. three, you know? Like, I almost feel stupid that I have so many because I can't decide. Back in the day, I used to go to like these uh, these sneaker stores in New York. They're like old school. Um, one was called VIM. One was called Models. Oh, Models. Yeah, like yeah. I would literally go in the bargain basement. Love it. The bottom row, $39.99 on Markdown. Put mm -hmm. it on. And then when you walk the streets, people are like, yo, what are those? It looks so fly the way you have it coordinated. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, this is VIM, Models, Bargain Basement, man. Way to do it. Yep. So it's not about getting the most hype stuff. One of the next questions I want to ask you was, where do you see yourself being in 10 years? <laughs> 10 years. Um, Obviously looking like 24 still probably, but besides that, <laughs> Thank right? You. Yeah, I'll look <laughs> 29. The secret for me is I don't really look that far ahead, to be quite honest. Um, sure, I want to know next year that we're still in business, that employees will have bonuses and they'll be paid and yada, yada, yada. But mm -hmm. I don't really put too much stress on myself or even put benchmarks on like, I want to have this many millions and I want to have this many employees and this mm -hmm. many stores in 10 years. Um, life is just too short, you know, to even think about that. I don't dwell on the past. I don't think about the future. I just literally want to live in the present as much as possible, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and if you repeat that level of thinking over and over every day, this is what I meant when I said left, right, left, right. Because if you're just concerned with the present every day, then you multiply that together and you will have longevity, you'll have sustainability, you'll have a legacy, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? But if you're like 
in 25 years, I better be doing this. Or in two years or five years, you better be doing this. And, you know, shit happens. You're not always going to hit your goals. And that's mm -hmm. kind of demoralizing for me. This is how I think anyway. I'm not saying everyone needs to think this way. But if I keep putting benchmarks in front of myself and I miss them, I'll feel bad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've gone through a lot of experiences in my life where I realized that tomorrow is not promised. And so, like, I just want to live each day to the fullest. People are like, oh, so you don't care about, like, you know, your your family's health in the future, like you, you don't have a savings account. No, it's not living reckless. There's mm -hmm. a difference between not stressing out and worrying about the future and also being present in the moment. I want to move on to Sesame Street because I was always a fan as a child. Okay. And I saw that yeah. you did a Sesame Street collab. Pretty amazing. Because you like Sesame Street growing Who didn't? up or? I mean, everyone learn their ABCs and one, two, threes from Sesame Street, right? And Cookie Monster always just made me want to eat a cookie, no yep. matter what. Yep, <laughs> me too. And to create your own brand um, rooted in counterculture, really, you mm -hmm. know, rooted in sort of anti-establishment and people not thinking that you could succeed, you know, uh, having an underdog brand, and then getting to a point where like this brand that you grew up with is now, you know, collaborating with us to create a whole collection with, and I remember in our, one of our first meetings, I threw out this crazy idea where I was like, we have a pigeon and you guys have Big Bird and we both have birds as our main mascots. <laughs> oh, yeah. Could we have Big Bird wearing a pigeon outfit and he's got a hoodie that he puts on and he's got a pigeon head. Um, you hyped up Big Bird, didn't you? Is, we totally <laughs> you made him street so wear him. We, we hype-beasted him out. Right. And then Elmo got jealous. And so Elmo wanted um, One as well? Yeah, so we gave Elmo <laughs> one. It's just another incredible benchmark for the brand. Um, it's really important to show young people and kids that like, you know, this is bigger than just sneakers and fashion. You can make, you know, clothes for kids. You could mm -hmm. have it be inspired by things that you were gr growing up on. I was really proud of that one about the ecosystem of the sneaker and streetwear culture. Mm -hmm. You've got your botters, you have your resellers. Do you think in the future, this is only going to increase? I used to always say that the bubble was gonna burst one day mm -hmm. and resell and these inflated prices and bots was gonna just burst and everyone was gonna go back to normal buying shoes for $89.99 plus tax, <laughs> you know? Um, but it just keeps ballooning and keeps growing and growing and it doesn't look like there's any end in sight. Um, and it's a game of supply and demand, right? Mm -hmm. So as long as the sneaker brands and the culture curators continue to increase the population of people who are into sneakers, mm -hmm. and as long as the sneaker brands either are regulating the quantity or can't keep up with the demand, mm -hmm. right? And the first number keeps growing, you're gonna have people that are willing to pay 1.25, 2X, 3X, mm -hmm. the original price, because there's a shortage of it. That's just simple supply and demand law of economics, mm -hmm. right? I think it's gonna be a while, five plus years before we see some sort of like, regu like regulation in terms of like deflation of like the inflated prices. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of things will have to happen for that to occur. Well, I can't wait to see. I know that we didn't say where you would be in 10 years from now, but I can't wait to see where your company will be. Because obviously you are a true success Thank in you. you know what you do. And I mean, my goodness, you've got like, what, four to five businesses, I feel like. I can't mm -hmm. even keep track. You keep expanding. Yeah. Jeff is going to own half of New York City. That is my <laughs> intuition. That's right. my prediction. That's it. what's going to happen. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you again for this. This was so much fun. Yeah. You fed me. 
rent it out of a restaurant. <laughs> We're eating on a stage. This is the best interview I've ever done. Now it's nap time, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>